Thanks, Joseph. You uh, are very, very kind. I uh, actually like people to introduce me as professor of applied theology and tell them that my advanced degree in what I teach as well as preaching is church history because everybody has really, really low expectations of you when you teach history. Um, So if you do a decent job in the pulpit and they think, oh, that guy was a history teacher, he's not too bad. But if you tell them you teach preaching and the sermon's bad, you're toast. So anyway, I have the privilege of uh, getting to teach both of those. Uh, If you were not here last week, uh, we started a new series on the book of Daniel, which is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And last week we looked at uh, the first narrative, which was chapter 1, and we talked about Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as they will be known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They entered into Babylon because they were captured, and we saw last week how they engaged that culture and what the Lord was trying to do with them and through them in that culture. Well, we're going to look at the second narrative today in Daniel chapter 2, and we'll see that things begin to get very interesting and exciting for Daniel and his friends. So let's pay close attention here to the first few verses of Daniel chapter 2. This is God's word to you and to me. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, had dreams. Uh, His mind was troubled and he couldn't sleep, so the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, to tell him what he dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and and then we'll interpret it for you. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But, 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 if you tell me the dream and you explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and then interpret it for me. Wow, lots going on right there. Let's uh, bow together in prayer, and then we're going to look at uh, what this story is about and what it means for you and for me. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to be here today corporately as your body, your church in this location. Lord, we ask that uh, you would be here with us, that uh, you would minister to us, and that what we say and sing and do and give would please you. Lord, I thank you for every person here. I thank you that I have the privilege to be here with them. And Lord, now, as we have sung praises to you and we've given our offerings, I pray on behalf of all of us that our hearts would be open and our minds would be open to the teaching of your word. Father, you've given us this word to shape us and mold us and make us more and more and more into the image of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. So we now give this time to you, and we ask you to speak. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this, and for our sake. Amen. Sometime tonight, about 90 minutes after you go to sleep, your brain's going to come alive with the crack of mental electricity pulsating through it. This electricity is going to 
unleash wave after wave after wave of biochemicals from the brain stem at the back of your neck. And those waves are going to travel at an incredibly high rate of speed to the top and the frontal lobes of your brain. Now, as those chemicals reach their destination, uh, your brain's going to do the very best it can to sort those out and sort out the electrical impulses. And as it does so, what it's going to do is it's going to create some visions in your mind. Some of those visions are going to be in black and white, and some of those are going to be in living color. And so tonight, as you lay on your bed for six hours or eight hours, or maybe if you're a teenager, 10 or 12 hours, you're going to experience a process that we call dreaming. Well, those are the dreams that all of us experience night after night after night. But we also have dreams of the day, don't we? Uh, dreams for what we'd like our lives to look like. And, and those dreams, that dream, those are the dreams that shape where our lives go, shape what we'd like to see our future look like, shape and determine our destiny. Now, I want to suggest this morning that every one of us in here has a dream for our life. We have a dream for the lives of those we love, our family members. So let me ask you this morning, friends, when you dream about your life, what do you dream? You know, if you think about it, different people dream different things about how they want their lives to look. Uh, some people dream about creating a better future for themselves and their families. For almost every single one of us in this room, our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents dreamed of a better life for themselves. So what they did years and years ago, maybe decades ago, maybe even a century ago, was what they did was they sacrificed everything they had and they got on these boats and they traveled across oceans. They went thousands of miles so that they could come to this country so that they could have a better life for themselves and their children and their grandchildren, and we're the recipients of their dreams. Other people dream of helping others fulfill their dreams. About 50 years ago, there was a woman who retired early from a job in the corporate world because she had a dream of helping women realize their own dreams, doing business on their own. And before she, 2011, Mary Kay Ash had built and promoted a company that literally helped thousands and thousands and thousands of women achieve their own dreams in the marketplace. And then there are others, there are others, and they dream really, really, really big dreams, dreams that encompass cities and countries and nations. Oh, on a steamy August night in 1963, a young African-American preacher stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial overlooking the mall in Washington, D.C. And he shared his dream of what America should look like, of blacks and whites living together in harmony, of, as he said, children being judged not by the color of their skin, but by the conduct of their character of the day when Every valley would be exalted and every mountain would be made low and the crooked places made straight and the glory of the Lord, the glory of the Lord revealed to everyone. 
Oh, friends, it doesn't matter if you're 12 or 22 or 42 or 72. All of us in here have a dream for our lives and the lives of those we love. So let me ask you once again, when you dream that dream, what's the dream that you're dreaming for your life? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of creating and ruling this enormous, enormous empire. And after conquering almost all of what today we would call the ancient Near East, all the way from what today we would call Iran and Iraq and Syria and Jordan and Israel, clear down to Egypt, after conquering all of that, he began to make his dream come true. He started out by expanding and building out his city of Babylon. Uh, historians have discovered that the ancient city of Babylon was constructed literally over the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River ran right through the center of it. And Nebuchadnezzar had these huge walls built, 85 feet high. That's, that's almost nine stories. And at the very top, those walls were 30 feet wide so that he could run chariots each direction at the same time. And then he began to build different temples within the city. He built over 60 different temples to his god, the god called Marduk. And then kind of the pinnacle of his building program, right in the center of the city, he carved out 11 acres. And there he created what became known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And it became known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Oh, at this point in his life, Nebuchadnezzar was on top of the world. He was the master of all that he could see. He had enormous power and wealth. He was popular. He was respected. He was revered and even feared. His word was never questioned. His authority was never challenged. If he were around in 2016 in North America, we'd look at him and say, you are the man. But you know, suddenly, out of nowhere, in the second year of his reign, there comes this incredibly disturbing dream. And he starts to have it night after night after night, and it really, really, really begins to bother him. We're going to fast forward ahead a little bit in the narrative just to show us what this dream was that Nebuchadnezzar was dreaming. Uh, this is where Daniel comes in and gives him the dream. So we're fast-forwarding. We'll come back here. But I want us to just see the dream that he's dreaming at this point. Uh, Daniel tells him, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching... While you were watching, O king, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue, that rock became a huge mountain, and it filled the whole earth. In the ancient world, dreams were taken really, really, really seriously because they were viewed as a connection between the world of the spiritual realm 
at humanity. In other words, it was a connection between the gods and us. Now, as is obvious somewhat by this content, Nebuchadnezzar realizes this is no ordinary dream. It troubles him and it disturbs him because it comes back night after night after night. And as the text says there in verse 1, he began to lose sleep. In other words, he began to suffer from insomnia. Uh, Maybe some of you here can empathize with that a little bit. If you've had a recurring dream that comes back and it bothers you, or if you have suffered from insomnia, you know what that does to you. It can kind of wreck you during the day. Well, that's what's happened to the king here. And as a result, he starts to feel insecure and afraid. Because this dream that comes back night after night after night, he realizes this this has ominous implications for him and what he's trying to create in Babylon. Instead of this being a really good dream, it almost becomes a recurring nightmare. And so as we're told in the first verses of this narrative, he calls in his magicians and his astrologers, his enchanters and his sorcerers. I mean, if we were to fast forward up to 2016, uh, this group of individuals would function in our culture kind of like a presidential cabinet or maybe one of those smarty-pants think tanks. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is going to try to utilize their abilities and their skills to get the help he needs, and that is he wants them to tell him the dream, but then he wants them, after they tell him the dream, to interpret it for him. And so he uses what we might call the old carrot-and-stick approach. The carrot is, is if you tell me the dream and then you interpret it for me, your lives will be taken care of. I'm going to bless you and bless your families. You'll never have it so good. But if you do not, I'm going to destroy you. I'll kill you. I'll kill your children. Everybody's going to die. Well, here's the problem. The magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers, Yeah, they are of some value to the king, but they don't have the ability to tell him his dream. As they tell him later on, we're not going to look at the verse, but they say, Oh, king, no king has ever asked this of his magicians and astrologers. We can't do that. We don't have the ability. They they recognize they, they can't help out here. And so the king, already on edge, already lacking sleep, already frustrated, seeing that they can't do anything, decides to create a huge crisis at court. Look at verses 12 and 13. This, that is their inability to do what he asked, made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. One of the things this narrative shows us right out of the gate is it doesn't matter how famous you are, how powerful you are, how rich you are, how talented you are, or if you're none of those things, it doesn't matter if you're a human being at some point or another, crisis comes into our lives. I mean, here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's the most powerful man of his day. He's at the the pinnacle of this empire, and yet he's suffering this enormous crisis. But now, so are his court magicians. So are Daniel and his three friends. And as much as I don't like it, friends, that's true for you, and it's true for me. Crisis comes. I mean, we've all seen that bumper sticker that says, 
stuff happens. And when stuff happens, you know this and so do I, we discover all of a sudden life is not as safe or as secure or as in control as we want it to be. You've been there and so have I, and that is not a fun place to be. For some of you in here, maybe at some point in the past, a marriage ended and you were all alone and that was a huge crisis. Perhaps for some of you in here, at some point along the way, you lost a child. Enormous crisis, heartbreaking crisis. Life has never, ever looked the same. I'm guessing that some of you in here at some point in your life got laid off and all of a sudden it was a crisis because the well-being of your family, your future was at stake. That was a scary time. Uh, For some of us in here, our health went south. We had no idea what the future might hold. Now I can relate to that one. A little bit over 10 years ago, I went in for my annual physical and my doctor said, hmm... Something's not quite right here. I'm going to send you a specialist. And he sent me this great specialist. And specialist checked me out. And he goes, eh, I'm not too worried about it. But just to be on the safe side, I want to do a biopsy. Came in a couple of weeks later, did the biopsy. He goes, eh, I'm not really seeing anything at the, this point on the biopsy. But we're going to send it to the lab. And three days later, he calls me. And he says, Scott, you've got cancer. And that was a crisis. It was scary because my mom had died of cancer. I, I knew what the future looked like if that were true. So... I had surgery about six weeks later, and fortunately, the Lord has preserved my life since then. But I can tell you, just like you can tell me, when we go through crises, life takes unpredictable twists and turns, and it is not fun. Now, I don't want to either downplay the crises we go through, Nor do I want to over-spiritualize the crises we go through. Because I think that they're disturbing and they're scary and they're very, very painful. But what I want us to know this morning is that sometimes, in fact most of the time, crises can be the points of what we call redemption. Because it's in and through crises that what God can do is He can show us who He is, what He's really looks like, and what He's trying to accomplish in this sometimes upside-down crazy world that we inhabit. And that's the focus of the rest of this narrative. In Daniel 2, 14-18... When word comes to Daniel that he and his friends are going to get executed, he very, very carefully negotiates with the guard and says, listen, I think I can help out in this situation. Can you get me an audience with the king? And he says, okay. So he gets him in to see King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel tells him, king, if you'll give me a little time, I think I can help out. And so the king says, okay, I'll give you a little time. So then what Daniel does is he gathers his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they form this prayer group. And it says that they pray all night long that the Lord of heaven would show them mercy by revealing the king's dream and its interpretation. Look at what happens next. During the night, during that night when they're praying, and I'll bet you they were praying like crazy, 
The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. The word of the phrase, God of heaven, is used five times in this narrative. And that's really, really important because when biblical authors, especially in stories, want to emphasize something, they always repeat it. Well, the phrase, God of heaven, is a phrase that denotes what we call theologically God's sovereignty. And the key word within the word sovereign is the word reign. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he rules and he reigns over literally everything in heaven and on earth. And then if we were to look at how Daniel describes God very specifically in this prayer, uh, he says that God is the one who changes the times and the seasons. Uh, He's the one who sets up kings and deposes them. And just a little caveat here, that's a little phrase we might want to hold on to, especially in 2016, in a crazy election year in our country. He goes on and he says, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows everything that's in the darkness and he dwells in unapproachable light. Of the two theological words that we use to describe the abilities and the knowledge and the power of God that Daniel ascribes to our God here are what we call omnipotent and omniscient. Our God is all-powerful, he's omnipotent, and he is omniscient. He knows everything. Let me summarize all this for us here. What Daniel is telling us here is our God is in total control, and he does whatever he wants with whomever he wants, whenever he wants, because he is great. He's great. Back in the 1970s, one of the leading golfers on the PGA Tour, and if you're a golfer, you know this, was a guy by the name of Lee Trevino. Trevino was a really, really good golfer. He was always in the top two or three. Well, on one occasion, he was playing in this tournament, and a thunderstorm came up, and you know this. You know this. When you're out playing golf and a thunderstorm comes up, you get off the course, but he just kept on playing. Well, what happened was he camped under a tree, and lightning hit the tree and struck him, and he eventually was hospitalized for about four or five months where he was convalescing. Well, after he got out of the hospital, Johnny Carson had him come on The Tonight Show, and you know, Carson would always be sitting there behind his desk, and The first chair to the right would be the the lead guest, and on this occasion, Trevino was the lead guest, and so they're bantering back and forth, and finally Johnny says to to Trevino, well, Lee, what'd you learn from getting hit by lightning on the golf course? And Trevino shot back. He said, I learned, Johnny, that when the Almighty wants to play through, you let him play through. I'm going to be really honest with you. My wife will attest to this. I don't like crises. I don't like things in my life getting jacked up. I like peace and order and stability because they're good things. And I'm guessing that that's probably true for you as well. But one of the things about crisis is that it forces us to recognize we are not in control of life or its outcomes. But our God is in control because he is great. 
He's great. You know, just like some of you in this room this morning, I remember that horrible, horrible day. It was a horrible day back in April of 1999 when right up the street here, those kids were murdered at Columbine. I remember where I was and what was going on. That was a horrible day. And I remember people saying after that, where was God? And just like many of us, if not most of us in this room, I I remember really, really well exactly where I was and what was going on when I heard about those planes crashing into those towers on 9-11 and all those people were killed. And I remember people saying, where was God when that happened? And I remember just four summers ago when that crazy young man went into that theater out there in Aurora and he murdered all those people. And I remember people saying, where was God when that happened? You know, I don't think I have a very good emotionally satisfying answer to the problem of great pain and great crisis and suffering and genuine evil when it comes. But I do know where God was, and I do know what he was doing when all of those horrible events happened. He was in the exact same place doing the exact same thing then that he was doing on that day when his son was crucified naked before his enemies on a Roman execution rack. Here's what he was doing. He was ruling and reigning the universe and he was enacting redemption for the good of his people and his own glory and he does that because he is great. He's great. And friends, lest we forget, lest we forget, not only is God great, God is always, always, always good. I mean, what if God were great, but his his character was in question? Or what if he was all-powerful, but he couldn't be trusted to be kind and compassionate and gentle with frail, limited, and sinful creatures like you and me? And there are religions in the world today that make him out to be great, but completely uncompassionate. For me, and I guess for you, that would be terrifying. But friends, the scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation tells us in thousands of places that our God is both great and he is good. And this story in Daniel chapter 2 affirms that. Uh, Look what Daniel prays in the benediction after he receives the vision in the night. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. Notice what he says here. I thank and praise you. You've given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we ask of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. You've given. You've made known. You've provided. Oh, God, you're good. So then what Daniel does is he goes to the garden. He says, take me into the king. I've got the dream and the interpretation. And he goes in and Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, Daniel, can you, can you tell me the dream and the interpretation? And look what Daniel says. Uh, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Oh, the all-powerful, the all-knowing God of the universe. 
shows this pagan king who finds himself in crisis and creates a crisis at court. He shows him what the future is going to bring, and he does it through this revealing of the dream to this little Hebrew teenager. The reason God did that, he didn't have to. The reason he does it, though, is because he is good. He's good. I don't know if anybody ever illustrated this better than C.S. Lewis did in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Volume 1 of the Chronicles of Narnia. I love the Chronicles of Narnia because he paints such a great picture of who Jesus is and what he's really like. And if you remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's the first volume and the kids enter Narnia. And when they come into Narnia, it's always winter and never Christmas because the white witch is in control. But they come in and they meet these different animals. And two of the animals they meet are Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver take them home. And the word is out that Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure, who's Jesus, is on the move. And they they don't know much about him, and so the conversation starts. And Susan asks, who's Aslan? Aslan said, Mr. Beaver, why, don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand, never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he's come back. He's in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white king, all right. It's he, not you, who will save Mr. Tumnus. But shall we see him, asked Susan. Oh, why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not, I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is... A lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. He's, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. He's good. Friends, our great God, our Savior, is awesome and omnipotent and omniscient, and he is good. And the rest of this narrative shows us exactly what he is doing in human history in order to promote what he wants, which is the advance of his kingdom and good for you and me. As we looked in a few minutes ago at verses 31 through 35, it tells us about that huge statue that Nebuchadnezzar was dreaming about. Well, now Daniel comes into the court and he tells the, dream, or he tells the king, here's the dream you had, O king. Here's this great statue and there was this rock cut without hands and it carved up the statue and smashed it to bits and then it took over. Well, then what he does is he goes on and he gives the interpretation of the dream. And he says, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, here's the interpretation. And he starts with the statue, and he says, You, O king, are the head of gold. 
And then he unpacks it and he says, another empire will come after you and it's silver. And most historians think that that was the Persian empire, which eventually conquered the Babylonians. And then he says, there's another empire that will come and that's the copper. And everybody thinks that that's probably Alexander the Great and the Hellenistic empire. And then he says, another empire will come and it's made of iron and clay. And most everybody thinks that that was the Roman empire. And it seems to make sense historically. But then he goes on and he gets to the key point of the dream, the point that Nebuchadnezzar really, really needs to understand and that you and I need to understand, and that is the interpretation of the stone cut without hands. Look what Daniel says this is. In the time of those kings, meaning the last set of kings, probably the Romans, the God of heaven, once again the sovereign God, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true. The dream's true. And its interpretation is trustworthy. Well, friends, the rock cut without hands is a picture of God's kingdom, which will, in the course of human history, take over everything. Because what God is doing is he's literally taking over planet Earth. He's establishing his rule and his reign. This is an Old Testament picture of Jesus who when Jesus came on planet Earth, his main message was, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And other New Testament writers describe Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In other words, what this prophecy is, is Daniel showing Nebuchadnezzar, and he's showing us that in Jesus the kingdom of God has come, and it is advancing through human history because our God is great and he is good, and he is trying to redeem this fallen, broken world and all the people who will align themselves with him. So friends, let me go back to that question I asked you at the beginning. When we dream for our lives or the lives of our families, what's the dream that we have? When we dream about this church and what we'd like to see it be, what would we like to see it become? Well, if we take this dream here in Daniel chapter 2 seriously, and we should, because it will come true. It tells us that what we want to do is make sure that all of the dreams we have in our lives and all of the dreams we have in the lives of our families and all of the dreams we have for this church, they need to be centered in the eternal kingdom of Christ because it's taking over everything. And in the end, it's the only thing that will endure. And I want us to know this morning that despite what we hear from the media that's all bad, bad, bad. Uh-uh, uh-uh. There's lots and lots and lots of good going on right now because Jesus is advancing his kingdom worldwide. Did you know that in the year 1850, it's only 166 years ago, did you know in the year 1850 the biggest religion in the world was Buddhism? Do you know what the biggest religion in the world is today in 2016? It's Christianity. It's spreading all over the globe. Did you know that in 1880, the leading thinkers in Europe, Marx and Durkheim and Nietzsche, 
all predicted that by the end of the 20th century, religion would be gone. And by religion, they meant Christianity. But did you know that in 2016, there are 6 billion people plus on planet Earth, and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of them are Christians? Did you know that a new church has started in Africa every day? Thousands of people are coming to Christ globally. Muslims are coming to Christ through visions and dreams of Jesus showing up to them. Organizations like Compassion International, which is centered down here in Colorado Springs, are leveraging physical and material resources to feed and educate the poor in the world, all in the name of King Jesus. Let me make this even a little bit more local, because I think I can speak with a little bit of knowledge here since I've lived in Denver most of my life. 30 years ago in 1986, I think that was the year, a year before this church was started. 30 years ago in 1986... I think there were maybe, maybe 15 really going and growing churches in the front range. Oh, today in 2016, if you travel from the southern end of Colorado Springs all the way beyond Fort Collins, you will encounter millions of people, but you will also encounter scores and scores and scores of churches that are preaching the gospel, reaching thousands of people for Jesus on the front range. Lots of good things are happening. And the reason they're happening is because our God, who is great and He is good, is He is advancing His kingdom life by life, neighborhood by neighborhood, county by county, city by city, country by country. He's taking over planet Earth, friends. See, as you and I dream about our lives, and we should have good dreams about our lives, those are good dreams, but we always want to center them in the dream of God's kingdom because that's a dream that you can bet your life on is going to come true. It's the only thing that will endure forever. Years and years and years and years ago, there was a guy by the name of George MacDonald. He was a really, really good writer. He eventually had tremendous influence over people like Lewis Carroll and G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. McDonald one day after church was walking with one of his sons. And he had this amazing ability to tease out what things looked like in a very imaginative way. And he was describing to his son the glory and the beauty and the happiness of what the kingdom of God will look like and be like when it finally comes in its fulfillment. It's an amazing, amazing picture he created. And his son said to him, Father, that sounds so good, it can't be true. And McDonald said, Son, it's going to be so good, it has to be true. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 comes to his friends and it says, Our God is great. He is good. He runs the universe. He's advancing his kingdom. And that you can bet your life and the lives of your families and the future of this church on that. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing some more worship to our great and good God.
Lord, this chapter should call forth praise from us because of who you are and what you're doing. Lord, you've done a lot of great things in and through this church already. I pray in the years to come that you would do many, many, many more great things. Lord, continue to work in our hearts and our lives. Help us to be faithful agents of the good news of Jesus. And we ask this now in his name and for our sake. Amen. Wow, worship team, thank you. You guys, thank you for leading us to worship the great God and Savior. Grab somebody by the hand next to you. Let's have a benediction here. Wow, Jesus, you are the only one who saves, and we praise you. Lord, work in our hearts today. Help us to feel your presence, your grace, your love. Send us out of here to our families, our friends, our neighborhoods, and to work this week just abounding with the praise and the love that you put in our hearts by your spirit. We ask this in your name and for our sake. Amen. Hey, give somebody a hug or a handshake and have a great week.